In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Some of the most uh, mature and wise stories we might hear come in the form of children's stories. Raise your hand if you ever saw Shrek. Many of you? Right. Okay, so that's a that's a, a whimsical, uh, somewhat indecent at times, maybe subtly bawdy at some moments, story about an ogre, uh, a green ogre. And, uh, but if you, real, if, you, if you stay with the story long enough, you realize that the story is not so much about an ogre, but of the transformation of an ogre. That, uh, as he would say, that his, there are deep layers to an ogre, if you weren't sure if you've never heard that before, that one does not simply become an ogre, that there's always layers to a story that lends itself to becoming an ogre. And so through a set of experiences in that film and the presence of various individuals, what you find is that something becomes true of Shrek the ogre that becomes to replace his ogreishness. That's really a word. That he turns from being an ogre into one who loves. For Lent, we've been taking a very patient walk through those famous words of Paul's in 1 Corinthians 13. We're listening to the nature and centrality of love, and we're doing so for a reason. Not to be sentimental, but to argue that for the last 12 months, I would dare say that what is most central to our identity has become most threatened by our circumstances. And I'd even like to argue, brothers and sisters, and those of you who are walking and listening at home, that, that the passage we're going to listen to today is probably the, the one thing to which we have become most prone in the last 12 months. I read an article by David French this week who asked this question about Christians in America over the last several years. He, he said, in evaluating the reality of the last five years, what has been more salient and relevant to the daily lives of so many American Christians? The fact of disagreement with brothers and sisters or the manner of disagreement with brothers and sisters? Obviously, he's asking a question to which he already knows the answer. It's, we're always going to disagree about stuff. It's just the nature of our communion. But the manner in which we do so, that's worthy of reflection. That's worthy of reading the catechism about the sixth commandment. Because friends, don't take it personally, or maybe you should. In these last 12 months, we shouldn't be surprised if many of us have discovered our inner ogre. And so what we're going to listen to this morning is just three or four words from that passage in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to ask ourselves two questions. What makes for an ogre? And then secondly, and more importantly, what will redeem an ogre? Because if we are one, what will free us from being one? If I might ask you to stand, we're going to read just a brief passage from Philippians 1 and then the passage from 1 Corinthians 13. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Love is not irritable or resentful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. 
what makes for an ogre? What defines an ogre? Two things, I think, according to this passage. The first one comes there in what is the first Greek word of the passage. It's the word paroxunatai. I know, you've all been studying that this morning. It's where we get the word that maybe isn't used so often in English language, the paroxysm. Somebody that is, is literally beside themselves, that they are easily set off. It's, it's why we get the ESV translation of someone who is irritable. Now, if you miss several nights of sleep, you're going to be irritable. That's not what Paul's talking about. And inasmuch as irritability often manifests itself in anger, anger in and of itself isn't the problem. If you were with us many years ago when we studied the, the, the passages in the Proverbs about anger, we discovered that anger is not so much the issue because anger in and of itself is only the fierce protection of what you is valuable to you. And oftentimes, you know what? Uh, you've heard of the, the proverbial mama bear. You get between mama and her cubs, she will be angry with you for threatening her babies. So anger is not the problem. Irritability is not to be equated with anger, and therefore anger is not the issue. What Paul was talking about here is an inner kind of boiling pot. An anger that lives very near the surface of your soul. It is like, it is like a gun with a loose trigger and no safety. Such that you now have a reputation for being somebody that you just don't want to cross them. Because they are paroxunatai. They are easily set off. And look, friendships don't last where one of them goes off easily after wrong's done. It doesn't last. And in a marriage where irritability reigns, that marriage will either devolve into a war zone between two parties or it will become where one is sort of bullied into silence and submission out of fear about how the other one is going to go off. But the most explicit connection that Paul makes in speaking of this irritability is actually what you hear him say to parents in Ephesians 6 verse 4 where it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The word there, to provoke, is the same word that Paul was speaking of here when he says love is not irritable. Now, my wife and I like to joke that Paul may say that, but Paul never had kids. But once you get past that little joke or that little quip, you realize that to provoke a child is really easy. And though mothers can do it too, he's speaking expressly to fathers because we seem to be uniquely capable of provoking our children to anger, of exasperating them. And so what does it mean, really, to, be, to fall into this trap of irritability with them? For one, it would mean to demand of them something that they just can't do in the moment to the point where they just sort of give up because they never could have done it beforehand. That's exasperating them. That's provoking them to anger. It's, it's taunting them, bullying them, withholding mercy from them until, until they just give up trying to please you. It's screaming and shouting at them until at some point they've decided 
the reason or what's going to most motivate their obedience to you is not out of respect or love, but just out of fear. You fall in that irritability. You provoke them in that way. You've become an ogre. And you don't even know it. So he says, don't provoke your children to anger. And he says, but raise them and nurture them in the admonition of the Lord. There's a contrast he's obviously making there. What is the nature of that contrast? It's this. It's what you're most seeking. What is true of parents is true of anybody that deals with anybody else. Here's the question. Do you want them mostly to comply with your will? Or do you want them mostly to embrace the Lord's will? Now, those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. And in some cases, they won't know how to embrace the Lord's will until they learn how to comply with your will. But we parents can go off the rails very easily and we fall into irritability because what we're most concerned about is them doing what we want, not necessarily what the Lord wants. You want to be an ogre? Fly off the handle and speak in ways that degrade and demean. That's, that's one leg of being an ogre, but what's the other? According to this passage, to being an ogre, there is something that's very outwardly manifested like irritability, but there's also another thing that operates very subtly and beneath the surface, and it broods. And our ESV translates it as resentment of being resentful. Now there, the English translation is one word. In the original language, it's actually turning one word from a phrase. And the phrase is more literally translated as counting wrongs. Keeping a tally of injury. Of pulling out your ledger and marking in every single column what wrong someone has done to you. Keeping an account. We'll come back to that idea or that verb of accounting soon. But if I can give you a more vivid picture of what it means to be resentful, it is to have arrows shot your way, some of which have landed, and you either gathering up those arrows or pulling them from your side, and rather than just sort of discarding them, you take them and you etch the initials of the one who sent them your way and then putting them in your quiver to be used for another day and not for a good purpose. That's resentment. That's counting up wrongs. That's the opposite of love. And if I may be very relevant to us, in the last 12 months, it is very possible that you have, maybe, maybe things have come your way, maybe, maybe choices that have been made for you, maybe policies that you have disagreed with have come your way, and we all have that experience, and maybe you haven't exploded at them, like, that's, like, that's beneath me, I should never, you know, manifest that kind of irritability in a public way, but maybe you've brooded. Maybe you've let your disenchantment or disappointment or frustration with decisions that we've made, maybe decisions that I have made, that you have used as a pretext to harbor ill will 
It happens. It happens in all of us. And it's a danger to any of us. And in the concealment of it, the allowance of it to fester and continue, well, we'll get into the consequences of that in a moment. Before we do so, I've got to pause for just a moment and make sure that I'm saying things with clarity. Because you might hear Paul say here, uh, wait a minute, don't keep account of wrongs. Wait a minute. Does that mean I should never care about what wrongs someone has done to me? Should I, should I never be concerned with them acting in an unjust way toward me? Should I just sort of blow that off? Is that what Paul is saying? No, that's what the Stoics would teach you. To simply move on, to be undeterred, unflappable in the face of wrongs done to you. But how does, how does what Paul is saying here about love is not resentful with what the Bible also says about do justly? So what about injustice is done to you? Does Jesus not care about that? Does Paul say, you know what, just take it like a man or take it like a woman? It's not what he's saying. Love, by its nature, wants to do right by wrong. It wants to see wrongs righted. So it's not like Paul is saying, it's not important to the Lord whether wrongs have been done to you before. What it is saying is this. When he says love is not resentful, he said, you need, I need to be careful in the way I respond to wrongs done to me, lest I become or act in ways that I despise having been treated. Resentment does that. When the only thing you want is payback, you haven't looked to a further horizon. And when all you look to is payback, then you are at risk of becoming the very thing that you've come to despise. And love is not resentful, brethren. If you have been despising, if you have been despised, rather, love never justifies you despising in return. And that's the definition of resentment. Now, it may be a stretch, but I think if you were looking at a figure in the Bible that kind of embodies ogreishness. You may not have ever associated with this guy, but, but it's not a long story. But if you ever read the book of Jonah, you kind of bring those threads together in one voice, right? You know, you know Jonah's story? He, he's enlisted by God to go and preach repentance to Nineveh. He balks at that. He bails. He, he jumps on a ship. He's eventually thrown overboard. He's swallowed by his shipmates. And there he has this come-to-Jesus moment, so to speak. And then he gets set back on his feet on dry land again. He's recommissioned to his task. He goes. He makes the announcement. Nineveh, unless you repent, you'll be destroyed. And then he goes over and, and sits on the outskirts of town and waits for the world to blow up in front of him. And what happens? Mic drop. Nineveh repents. And you would think Jonah would do the happy dance. Oh, look, I've been faithful to the Lord. But what does he do? He gets angry. He gets angry, explosively angry, that judgment did not fall on Nineveh. And then as he's sitting there stewing in his juices, the Lord in his kindness raises up this plant to grow up over him, to shield him from the hot sun. And he likes that. And then the sun of the day 
wilts the plant, it shrivels in front of him, and then once again, he's angry, brooding, explosively angry. And on two separate occasions, in Jonah chapter 4, the Lord asks Jonah the same question. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Which is a, a kind of old way of saying, tell me again why you think you have a right to be angry. Remind me why you feel so justified in that. Jonah captures this idea of being irritable outwardly and brooding and resentful inwardly toward God or towards the Ninevites or to his history, to his mother, who knows what. He embodies that sense of being an ogre. But what I want you to most take from that little exchange between Jonah and the Lord is this. The questions God asks Jonah, I would like to argue to us, is a pathway towards redemption from being an ogre. And I choose the word redemption from being an ogre very carefully and very purposely. Because as the layers of our ogreishness we come to reckon with, we realize there is no snap of the fingers. There is no just telling you, stop being an ogre. There has to be a little inventory of the heart. And that inventory has certain questions that are attached to it. So I've already told you the two things that make for an ogre. Now I want to finish this sermon by telling you the three questions you've got to ask to begin redeeming the ogre. What are they? The first two questions are eminently practical. Stuff that anybody can do. The third question, irreducibly spiritual. But let's talk about the first two questions. What do you need to ask yourself if you're going to be liberated from the heart of an ogre? The first question is really simple. Why? Why do I find myself so easily irritable and so deeply resentful? Why is that? What has come over me? What circumstances has led to this manifestation in me? Why do I want to be this way? Why do I not only want to fly off the handle so easily, but when it comes to resentment, why do I, why do I not just want to desire for the wrongs to end? Why do I want to desire harm be done to the one who did it? There's a difference there. And so if you think of resentment or irritability like a bomb, the best way to spit on the fuse is to ask yourself why. Why is this here? In, in the Psalms, in Psalm 42 and 43, the, the, the psalmist is not on the, on the edge of, of irritability. He's not on the edge of resentment, but he is on the edge of despair. And in three times in Psalm 42 and 43, he asks the same question. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why is there turmoil within me? What's he doing? His first step out of the bog of his own despair is to ask himself the question, how did I get here? Why am I so beset? Brothers, friends, beloved, you there, we here. The first question you've got to ask yourself if you want to redeem the ogre is, why am I being an ogre? But that leads to a second question. Not only, why am I here? But what have I come to deny 
in order to justify my ogrishness? What have I come to deny in order to justify this heart of mine? And, and I think there's little things that you have to deny in order to justify it. One, you have to deny the pointlessness of you acting like an ogre. Everything we do has a point to it. Everything we do has an aim. It has a purpose to it. It's what we do. And yes, some anger is understandable and necessary. You're out to defend something that's valuable. And yes, some wrongs done to you, it makes sense that you would be incensed by that and want it to end. But there comes a point in which you have to ask yourself, look, if you're explosively angry and if you're deeply broodingly resentful, How's that worked for you? What fruit has ever been born of it? Um, it will take you nowhere. It, it, it is like uh, inflating a latex balloon and then putting a, a cigarette lighter under it, uh, waiting for it to take you away. It, it will never happen. You have to deny the pointlessness of your ogrishness and at the same time, you have to deny not just its pointlessness, but its destructiveness. I've already shared with you about one manifestation of acting irritably or resentful towards children. It will leave a mark on them. And maybe that mark is below the surface, but it will outwardly degrade them. But at the same time, it is outwardly degrading anyone. It will also inwardly corrode you. There is a cost, not only to those who are in the wake of it, but to you who are the origin of it. And that's why I want to read you something from C.S. Lewis. One man, he says, may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands, and another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each has done something to himself which, unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage next time he is tempted and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Everything we do, one monk said, plants something in our soul. And every time we give ourselves to irritability and resentment, We've created the soil for it to grow deeper. You and I have to deny the pointlessness of it and the destructiveness of it if we're to justify it. And as we're doing that, we deny one last thing. We deny the hypocrisy of it. Why do we feel so self-righteous and justified in, in being so easily angered with another or being so resentful toward another? Because we think they deserve it. And if we applied our worldview to ourselves, how many things would we be deserving of the same? We are frail. And we fail. And there are so many instances when we no wonder somebody didn't. It's amazing that somebody else did not get set off by our behavior. And we can entirely understand why somebody might resent us for a long while. But every time we exist and exert the motion of the heart 
toward irritability and resentment. We have blinded ourselves to ourselves. And therefore, you have to deny the hypocrisy to justify your effort. Okay, those are the first two questions. Very practical. Go that far, you'll get some mileage out of that. You should ask yourself, why am I like this? And then you also have to ask yourself, what am I out to deny in order to justify it? But the last question is irreducibly spiritual. The first two questions, you, you may not know the answers to it until you ask them. This third question, you know the answers to it. You just need to recover it by asking the question. And here's the third and irreducibly spiritual question. Why do I have in Jesus better reasons and resources to walk in love rather than irritability and resentment? Why do I have in Jesus better reasons and resources to walk in love rather than irritability and resentment? It went fast there at the beginning of our worship service, but that orthodox iconographer, the one who makes artwork to remind us of who Christ is, He's there to remind us that the first act of faith is not moral action, it's attention. And that means for you and I to walk in love, to walk in faith, is first to give our attention to what we see and what we have in Jesus. And what do we see in Him? We see one who stepped willingly into worlds of ridicule and conspiracy and disrespect and disdain. We saw him walk into worlds of, of hatred. And if we experience what he experienced, we can almost understand why he wouldn't go ballistic. Why he wouldn't explode in irritability at the way he's been treated. And yet, brothers and sisters, if you will look very carefully at those few moments in which Jesus demonstrates his anger, when he drives the money changers from the temple, he doesn't hurt a flea. And it's all there to persuade everybody about the holiness of God. And when he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, he's not lashing out at Peter. He's lashing out at the mentality that Peter has that's so far off about how far love will take Jesus. When you see that, then you will realize that your Efforts at exploding at people for far lesser things just doesn't wash. And when you see Jesus in that way, when you pay attention to what we see in Him, you also figure out what we have in Him. Because when He did not revile in return what He was reviled of, He did not count our wrongs against Him, against us. The gospel is this. He did not resent us for wrongs done to the Lord. He did not count our sins against us. He counted them against himself. And the extent to which you and I pay attention to what we have in him, that we would never have a seat at God's table apart from him, that is the way out of the depth of our temptation to acting like an ogre. When you see, when you pay attention to what we see in Him, when you pay attention to what we have in Him, then you remember that we have more than we could ever ask or imagine, and we also have His Spirit to remind us that we belong to Him.
And somehow that softens us. And somehow that humbles us. And in humbling us, it leads us, allows us to let go oh, of our penchant to be so irritable and be so resentful. And that's why, brothers and sisters, I cannot think of a more perfect application of what we've just heard than to come to this table. Because participation in the table is its own application of the passage. And for those of you who are at home who cannot participate as these others here, the time is coming, I promise you, when we will all be able to do this together. But because this table is a communal table, it is meant to be gathered among the saints. It's meant to be shared with those who are present to one another. And for this reason, when Paul explains what it means to eat and drink worthily of the table, of the body, of the blood, of the bread, and of the wine, he says we must examine ourselves. We must, in his own words, in chapter 11, verse 29, we must discern the body. And by that he means probably at least two things. For you to come to this table, you must examine yourself and discern that what we have here pictured for us is the strongest picture of someone refusing to be irritable with us and instead exercise not just restraint but love toward us. That at this table we have the strongest picture imaginable of someone who does not count our wrongs against us but counts them against himself. We have that in Him. And we have to discern the body in that way. Discern His body in that way. But at the same time it says discerning the body who is Jesus, it also means discerning the body of who is Jesus' body. And to discern that body properly, to eat and drink worthily of this, is not to come as sinless people. You're not. I'm not. No one is. No one could come to the table if sinlessness was prerequisite. But one thing is necessary. That before you come to this table, you look around at everybody in this room and you remember that you belong to each other. You are part of one another. And therefore, to eat and drink worthily means if there's somebody in this room that you need to make amends with or confess harboring a grudge with, then even if you can't do that before you partake, you commit yourself in this moment to do so shortly thereafter. Because you're the body. And if you fail to discern that, then you do not eat and drink worthily of this table. If irritability or resentment holds you, then brethren, there is no better application than for you to come to this table and to receive what it has for us. To remember what He's given to us. Not just the benefits of His cross, but the fullness of who He is. That's what we're getting. It's not grape juice. It's not a wafer. It's Him. And in receiving that, here's the deal. To this we pay our attention. And in this we have our worship. And by this, we shall move from being ogres to lovers. And for that we praise Him. And on account of that we come to this table. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. 
And after supper, he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you will in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Christ is our Passover lamb. And he was slain that we might let go our crooked little hearts, that we might love our crooked little neighbors. And therefore, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Hallelujah. Father in heaven, we come to you as sinners, but as sinners who believe that you love sinners, that you love them while they are sinners, and love them to make them into those who sin less, but that your love for us is steadfast, no matter how well we've done this day or how poorly. Father, we give you thanks that you give yourself to us more than your benefits, but your goodness, your person, your spirit. And we would pray that you would grant us the courage and the humility to love the body that you enfolded us into, all because we have come to love the one who gave his body for our eternity. We praise you for it. We ask that you might help us to receive this and to be consecrated to your life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved ogres, it sure was good being with you, uh, from, for you at home. We miss you. We hope to see you soon. Um, just a reminder um, to congregate outside uh, immediately following the service. Um, but before you go, uh, lift your heads for this good word. Now to him who is able to do far more than we can think or imagine according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.